the hell of being hurt, the hell of hurting another, the hell of cancer, the hell of a reluctant thunking shovel of earth upon the casket of someone we deeply loved, the hell of divorce, of a kid in trouble, of Alzheimer's, of addiction, of stress, of aging, of knowing that this year, like any year, may be our last. We all walk through hell. The point is not to come out empty-handed. The point is to make your life worthy of your suffering. This is the Life Changing Conversations podcast. Thought-provoking, pioneering, provocative, challenging, and intriguing. And that's just Neil Shah. Neil delves into the lives of his eclectic mix of guests. With his probing, curious approach, Neil explores what these ordinary people with extraordinary stories are all about. Discovering what motivates them, how experiences have shaped them, leading them to change the course of their lives. Join us in the conversation. Like, comment, share, and tell us what you think on our LCC Facebook page and here on iTunes. This podcast is brought to you by Change Your World Events, an incredible organization that for the last few years has been creating a ripple effect of positive change for individuals, organizations, and the environment. If you'd like to find out more about them, check them out at changeyourworld.me. And that's really what we're here to do today, to inspire you to change your world and in turn the world around us. Today's life-changing conversation I'm about to have is with a very special guest speaker, one that I've been looking forward to for the last few weeks, is Rabbi Steve Leader. He's joining us live from Los Angeles today. So firstly, welcome, Steve. Uh, good morning. I appreciate it's first thing in the morning uh, for you. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. And one of the main reasons I'm really excited to be here with you today is this book, which uh, only arrived recently, uh, but I have been reading the PDF version, and I'm really looking forward to getting deeper into this. And it's your book, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. And it's so relevant for what's going on around us. And also from a personal perspective, with some of the experiences I had recently, um, that, that, that there's a lot that I can really take from this. And I really want to explore, you know, firstly, who you are. I know, you know, professionally, you're the senior rabbi of the Wiltshire Boulevard Temple, which supports two and a half thousand families. And, you know, I know that you're involved with some incredible work. I also know that you're quite a, a high-profile, prestigious figure and have been voted as one of the uh, one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America, which is quite an accolade. So I'm very pleased and honored that you've taken the time to be here with us today. So firstly, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you for being here. Uh, I'm doing well, and I'm very honored to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. And, you know, you started by reading us the opening paragraph of your book, very powerful words. I've actually read it about five or six times already because the words so deeply resonated with me. And, and I think that really sets the tone for, for our discussion today. Um, it's a powerful statement. It's an immediate shift of mindset where we stop looking as pain and suffering as a negative thing, where we can actually move forward and move through the stages of grief and trauma to get to the point of not just acceptance, but ultimately, and I think this, I can only talk from my personal experience, you eventually arrive at the junction of gratitude where you start to realize that actually forget forgiving the people that cause you pain and trauma and forget coming to terms with it and making peace with it, actually becoming grateful for it. And I know that there's elements that, of the work that you've done and the books that you've written that really go into that. And I really want to explore how powerful that can be when we, 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 we literally flip that narrative. Um, 
So I just really want to, you know, explore that, uh, explore the suffering that people are experiencing and, you know, you know the, 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 the realization you've had. Have you always felt this way? So before we get more deeply into this, I think the, 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 the thing I really want to establish is who is the real Steve? What is your purpose? What is your DNA? Why are you here? And I'm talking about here on, on planet Earth. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you ask most people, even children, and I'm going to put this in a religious frame, but you can put it in any frame you'd like. Your, your question was a secularized version of a question I often ask people, including children, which is, what did God make you good at? And when you ask people, what did God make you good at? They almost always know. Now, it doesn't always have anything, something to do with your profession, you know. Uh, but most people have this intuitive feeling at a certain point in their lives where they, they know what God made them good at. Yeah. And I will tell you what made me, I, I don't know what made me who I am, but I will tell you my earliest memory of having this insight into myself. I was in fourth grade, which means I was about 10 years old. And uh, I went to a public school in Minneapolis, Minnesota, full of, you know, working class, middle class kids. And I'm going to I'm going to change the name because this person who was a child then is a grown woman now and might somehow hear this story. So let's let's make her name Debbie. OK, there was this girl in our class named Debbie who was clearly different than the other kids and troubled emotionally. Uh, she would be today described as being on the spectrum, but we didn't have those words back then. Hmm. And I remember fantasizing in my in my mind, going to Miss Hollingsworth, who was my teacher, and saying to Miss Hollingsworth, you know, could I just have a few minutes alone to talk with Debbie? Because I think I can help her. I wanted to help her. And that is my earliest memory of this, this strand in my DNA that encourages me to run towards a fire and not away from it. And that's the way I'm built. I run toward trouble. And that's who I am. And, if, and, and that's kind of what led to my entire life's path. Now, I have certain skills. I'm, I, I'm good with language. You know, I'm terrible at math. So there was this kind of process of elimination that led me you know, to becoming who I am professionally. But as a human being, I have this strand in my DNA that just impels me to seek out pain and try to soothe it. The, the, the infinite, you know, philosophical wisdom have a concept known as Ikigai. I'm not sure if you come across the concept of Ikigai before. Ikigai basically quite literally translates as your reason for being is where your purpose, your profession, your passion, they all coincide. And it's that sweet spot in the middle. And, and this has basically become part of my life's quest, not just to discover my Ikigai, but to help people to discover their very reason for being. Yes. And we do live in a world that is distracting. Look at this. Look at this. Do this. Yes. Buy this. And, and, and very few of us actually take the time to reflect and contemplate to discover the truth of who we are, to separate story from, from well, truth. I think it's even deeper. I think we all know we often know the truth, but we fail to pursue it. Right. Yeah. And I'll give you another concept uh, in Hebrew called uh, tikkun, which means repair. 
there's this belief among the Jewish mystics of the 17th century that every human being has his or her own unique tikkun, his or her own unique repair, mending, to bring, to bring into existence, to bring into the world. And only you can make that repair. Only you have this destiny. And, and I believe people feel this, but there are a lot, as you so rightly pointed out, Neil, there are a lot of societal pressures that, that encourage us to move away from, from our unique repair rather than toward it. It may be parents, it may be, uh, it may be commercialism, it may be materialism, uh, it may be many things, but I think we all have, I, I believe this very firmly, we all have our own unique repair to bring into the world. And that, I, I very much concur with what you're saying, and I think there's definitely more for us to explore there. I'm fascinated, though, that we live in a world that distracts you from that. The, you, you know, that I think if people all started to discover their destiny, their very reason for being, would we be able to maintain the world as it is today? And particularly with what's going on at the moment with, you know, current circumstances, and those are extensive, you know, we've got the, the virus, we've got lockdown, we've got quarantine, we've got the economic impact, we've got the tanking of the global economy, we've got, uh, you, you know, the, 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 the Black Lives Matter, the racial tensions. There is so many different factors playing out at the moment, which... I think these are all things that are bubbling under the surface for a very long time. Now, all of a sudden, we have to face our collective pain. We can't face yes. from it anymore. Yes, but I don't think any of them... I think you may, you may be falling into the trap of confusing a person's profession with his or her repair or his or her, or her destiny, right? Okay. We, can okay. bring, we can bring our own unique um, ability into the world regardless of the state of the world. In fact, I would argue that present circumstances are our greatest opportunity, not our greatest impediment to realizing who we truly are. These are the moments that call us to really stand up for who we are, what we believe, and not the opposite, right? Let them not shut us down. Let them empower us. You know, uh, Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. That is such a powerful idea. Can you lead a life that is worthy of your suffering? And I would say collectively now, given the global pandemic and, and the civil unrest, can we as, as a, a family, as an individual, as a family, as a neighborhood, as a city, as a state, as a nation, as a world, can we rise up and be worthy of the suffering confronting us? That is the question. And, and that's the reframe where we see this. I personally see the current circumstances, and it's as bad in Los Angeles as anywhere in the world right now. Uh, I speak with the mayor every Monday morning and every Friday morning, and none of the indicators are positive right now. Okay. People ask me how I'm doing, and I say, great, because I find this entire thing incredibly invigorating. This is an epic opportunity for us to become who we truly are. It is not an impediment. It is an opportunity. You just, yeah, it's really got me thinking because I can't remember who said it and I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of on the precipice of disaster is the greatest opportunity. And that's very much what it feels like we're facing at the moment. And, 
just bringing it back to, to, to you know, your realisation, because at some point you came to this conclusion, you, you know, how did you become worthy of your suffering? What was mm. your catalyst? What, what led you to this realisation? Because I'm sure there was a process that led you to this realisation. Yes. Well, uh, let's just talk about the purpose of the book for a moment. And that is that this book, uh, More Beautiful Than Before, was my apology for my prior life. Let me explain. <clears throat> when I wrote the book, I had already been a rabbi for 27 years of a very large, very complex, very demanding congregation um, and a community of about 8,000 people. And I was witness to a tremendous amount of pain and personal suffering during those first 27 years of my rabbinate. I'd seen, and I'd seen it all, you know, I'd helped parents bury children in a coffin the size of a shoebox. Um, I'd buried young mothers and fathers with, with children, I, you know, murders, uh, death by suicide. I'd seen it all, you know, public reputations ruined, uh, bankruptcy. I'd seen so much pain, but it had all been vicarious. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job of helping people through their suffering until I experienced my own, uh, which was, which came to me in the form of a very frightening car accident, which to make a long story uh, shorter, resulted in uh, extraordinary physical pain, uh, opioids and steroids, opioids and steroids, opioids and steroids, finally surgery on my spine, more pain, more opioids, more steroids, uh, clinical depression, and I realized through that process, which we can get into, that despite my best intentions to help others through their pain, I knew nothing about pain. So I wrote this book as a form of an, an apology, like to, to, to set the record straight, to correct where I had been wrong in the things that I had been saying to people, trying to be empathetic about their pain. Uh, now, 5% of the book is about me, and 95% of it is about this phenomenon of pain being the greatest teacher. And, and let me be clear, Neil, in no way is the book, in no way is my mission to, to glorify or idealize pain. Pain is horrible. Pain is pain. It is suffering. It is dark. It is abandonment. It is fear. It is anxiety. Pain is horrible. I'm not pretending otherwise. And none of what we learn from pain is worth the suffering. My point is, neither is it worth less. Hence, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty-handed. Because pain at its core is, in my view, the only teacher. You know, success doesn't teach us very much other than to keep doing the same things over and over again. Pain is the great teacher. Uh, pain is the disruptor that forces us. It did. It did for me because I'm a very stubborn guy. Forced me to change my life. You know, the, the, the sages of the Talmud say, if you are visited by pain, examine your life. Now, they don't say that to imply that we deserve the pain that we receive in life because we all know terrible things happen to us and we don't deserve them. They say, if you are visited by pain, examine your life because pain is an opportunity to reevaluate your life and to change your life. 
And and again, I'm not saying to anyone who has suffered something horrible, which is all of us, because to be human is to suffer. I'm not saying it's worth it or or this isn't a bad thing. This is ultimately a good thing. No. All I'm saying is there is within it a very powerful opportunity to change your life. And this has got me thinking from a, from a personal perspective, like yourself, I've been working in a field of, you know, examining the human condition and helping people to really understand how to improve their, their mental health, deal with stress, anxiety, etc. And I've been doing this work for coming on to two decades now. From a theoretical perspective, I understand this. I've written books on the subject. I lecture on this. You know, I, I, I get it. And I can very easily explain and describe this to other people and give them tools to be able to, to, to deal with it. But when it happens to you, even if you have all the answers and you have all the frameworks and all the methodologies, it's not always easy to be able to navigate such experiences. And here's... Just based on what you've, you've been saying, here's for me a, a really fascinating thing. Um, I use slightly different language than you, but I, I think it's because I've arrived at the same realizations just through different waypoints. But the way I see it, the universe will give you lessons. And if you don't grasp a lesson the first time, the next time round, it will be a little bit more painful. Eventually, you'll get a two by four around the head. And having had several two by fours, one relatively recently to deal with loss and attachment, and it's one that you can't actually prepare for until you're in that situation. And it's interesting. One of the words I read in uh, one of the phrases I read in your book, comfort dulls our edge, pain sharpens our perspective. But there are things that you cannot prepare for. Uh, I'll share with you a very short story to just give you a sense of how you cannot possibly prepare for some of the most painful situations you've ever been experiencing. What I'm about to describe to you is probably the, the deepest, most painful experience I've, I, I, I've experienced in my whole entire life. And it was September the 1st, 2017. I went to watch a football game with my dad. My dad's a fit, healthy guy. Never been ill day in his life. Uh, you know, he'd had a good day, been in the gym. We'd, you know, had a good laugh at the football. Uh, dropped him off. Um, went home. Three hours later, I get a phone call from my mom. And something bad had happened. And by, based by the time I turned up, he'd had a brain hemorrhage. And he'd fought valiantly for a few days. And then he was gone. With no prior notice, no illness, no warning, just just gone. Now, I'm not saying it's any easier when someone is ill, but at least you can prepare for the inevitable. There was no preparation. It literally, it, it, it took the wind out of the sails. It, it leveled me. And, you know, the, the advice you get from people, be strong. You've got to be strong for your family. It's going to be fine. And you convince yourself that, you know, you've got to be strong and everything's going to be fine. And when... That initial storm passed, I realized that I, I, I was non-functional. Like I, I literally was not able to show up to, to fulfill my day-to-day -day obligations. That was by far the most painful experience of my life. And having spent several years trying to come to terms with that, and just when you think you've got it, you realize you haven't because Father's Day comes around. Or a few weeks ago, my father's football team won the championship here in, in Britain. And, you, you know, it's a silly, trivial thing. I don't even support that football team. But yeah, but you, you miss him. Yeah, you exactly. yeah. It just brings up all of this emotion. And yes. it, keeps, you know, it keeps raising the question is, what purpose is this serving? I've dealt with this. Why do you keep pulling me down and dragging me down? And this, this kind well, of deeper inquiry around pain is something I'd really love to explore with you. So let's talk about this. And you and I are on the same path. My father died uh, about 
uh, nine, 20 months ago. Okay. Uh, look, uh, let's, I want to break this down a little bit when you said, well, you can't prepare for this. In a way, Neil, I don't know you well enough to know for sure, but my guess is that in many ways, your adult life has all been preparation in a way not that prevents pain. You can't prevent the death of the father you love. But I would suspect that you navigated your way and are navigating your way through that pain in in a way that is the result of how you had lived your life up until September 1st of 2017. In other words, you're part of a community that cares about you, and I am sure that community rallied uh, to comfort you up, uh, through the ups and downs. You, it sounds to me like you had no unfinished business with your father. No, uh, you know, or, uh, or that very little unfinished business. Uh, and so you're not ridden with guilt. Uh, it, it seems to me, um, you know, that a way that you're thinking about grief as something that's weighing you down. And I would, I see grief and this is just one son talking to another, you know, who, and I, like you, I discover my dad in countless ways now all the time. I, I laugh at things I know he would he would say in a given moment. Uh, every time I wipe my plate with a crust of bread, super clean, to get all the last drops of sauce off my plate, that's my father. Every time I turn off the lights when I leave the room, even if I'm only leaving for a minute because it might save one-tenth of a penny, that's my father, you know. So I I don't see these moments as weighing me down. I don't see grief as weighing me down. I see it rather as a reflection of my deep and abiding love for my father. I see it as, as an indication of the depth of our love for each other, not only as something weighty and dark and sad. Uh, and, and that's, and, and so you can't prepare in a way that prevents pain from happening to you. You can prepare and live in a way that enables you to stand up to the pain and 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 to endure the pain uh, in a and I'm going to use this word very deliberately in in a more beautiful way and to make something of it. Uh, you know, you are in a sense honoring your father in death in this very conversation we are having right now. You're honoring him. And I, I'm guessing you've found many ways to honor him since his death. And, and, you know, my next book is called The Beauty of What Remains. And it is exactly about this subject. How death reveals the beauty of what remains, of what remains of the person we love who, who has died, and what remains of our own lives. Stephen, sorry, it's just that I feel really emotional just having this conversation. But I'm just comparing it to other forms of pain because a few years ago I broke my back on a trip to Iceland and I, I, I read in your book, obviously, that, that you had an accident as well. But when I think back to the physical pain and the trauma and you know, having to, 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 to rely on, on drugs to get me through the pain, when I reflect back on that, there is no physical sensation. There is no emotional reaction. I can remember right. it as a fact, as a matter of fact, as a 
something right. that happened. But talking to you about my father, and I feel emotion right now. I feel tearful right now. You know, again, like I, I totally understand. You know, from a neurological perspective, that the pain is experienced in the same parts of the brain. Correct. But why is it that I can feel emotional pain right now when there is nothing hurting me in this moment? But physical pain, I can remember it with no reaction. Yes, that's true. You cannot relive physical pain. And this is why, in many ways, physical pain is, frankly, easier to deal with because when it's over, it's over. Now, you do get, you do have, your body does have a kind of PTSD as a result of the physical pain. For example, I walked with a limp even after my surgery because my brain, despite the repair, my brain still was protecting my lower back. So, yes. Now, you have to decide. You have to make a decision in terms of how you think about emotional pain because the trade-off for your emotional pain when you think about your father, the, the payoff for that, Neil, is the warmth and the power and the beauty and the sustenance of your memories of him that, that come with the ability to also feel the loss. This is the thing about memory. This is the dark secret about memory that, that people don't fully understand or articulate. They feel it, but they can't really understand it or articulate, which is there's a duality to memory. Memory is beautiful and it hurts. It's like being slapped and kissed at the same time. And you simply cannot have one without the other. And this is the duality of memory. But what else can we do when we miss our dad so deeply? But remember, and it's exquisite and it's painful. And that is the deepest truth about memory. And in just going back to some of the experiences that have led you to these realizations, you know, I'm sorry for the loss of your father. Again, as I said, I can empathize and re relate to, 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 uh, to, to that. Um, but obviously, I understand that you, you had a, a more direct sort of physical trauma as well, which has been part of your, your story and part of your realizations. And, um, you know, how did that feed into to, to you understanding sort of the, the, this journey and this dance, should I say, yeah. that we have? Well, the book is divided into three sections because it was the trajectory of my journey through the physical and therefore the emotional pain, which is surviving, healing and growing. Right. These, this, in my view, is the, is the uh, trajectory of pain. First, you have to survive it, whatever it is. You literally have to physically survive that car accident, uh, that hiking accident in Iceland or whatever kind of accident it was. Uh, you have to get through that first year of losing your father, the first Father's Day, the first birthday, the first anniversary, all of that. You have to survive. And the first chapter of the book is called When You Must, You Can. People can survive because they have to. The second is healing. What does it what do you need to learn about yourself, your life? What do you need to change in order to, to give yourself the space and time to heal? When you said earlier, I literally couldn't fulfill my daily responsibilities in the midst of the early grief uh, uh, over the loss of my father. My what I wanted to say was, well, why should you? who who anyone how could anyone who loved a father the way you loved yours go back to work three days later how could you why would you 
right? So you have to heal. You you cannot push a river upstream. You know, you you cannot go against the emotional forces of what it means to be a human being, right? So I would have given you great permission to heal, time and permission to heal. And then the third and final phrase, which is the more beautiful than before part, is now. How will I grow from this? How will this change me as a human being? Because as I said before, it's really only change. It's really only pain that creates this change. You know, let me get a little geeky for a moment, a little little eggheady. Um, most people misunderstand uh, evolution as a biological concept. I, I often love the way in which biology and religion and human life are really articulating the same thing with different language. So most people think of evolution as a, as a steadily ascending line in terms of human life on the planet and animal life and plant life. And it's not true. The current theory of biology is something called punctuated equilibrium, which means things go along at a plateau for a while and then something happens, some trauma, some catastrophe, and it causes an almost immediate, it punctuates the equilibrium and causes an immediate shift and change. And then that creates a new plateau. And I see pain as this most effective of all punctuators of our equilibrium. It wakes us up and it impels us to change. Now, we all know people have painful experiences who don't change at all. And I would say one of two things. Either it wasn't painful enough. It wasn't the two by four you referred to earlier. They haven't hit bottom to put it in terms of addiction. Um, or, or they're missing the opportunity. And I think, yeah, from your, what you're saying, it makes absolute sense that some of the, the, the most challenging experiences we've had uh, yeah, globally, World War One, the Spanish flu, World War Two. It has been lots of really tragic, painful collective traumas, which good things came as a result of it. It's horrible to say that, but we've had the longest period of peace in Europe as yes. a result of World War Two. Would that have happened if we didn't have that experience? You, you know, how many other sort of tragic, collective, painful experiences have we had? And in a way, and I will come back to this, we're going to track back to this point, is what we're experiencing as a collective trauma, a, a similar opportunity. That's right. Be before we get to that, obviously, you know, having faced this, the, 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 this kind of uh, experience yourself, there's something that happened that allowed you to become uh, unstuck, the, that prevented you from getting consumed by your pain and suffering. And, you know, our podcast is called Life Changing Conversation. So, you know, there was a moment that literally changed the trajectory of your life. And that could have been either a, um, an internal dialogue or a conversation with something else or an experience that literally shifted the, the trajectory of your life. So, so what, what happened? Well, it wasn't a singular moment. Okay. It was a collection of moments and, and insights. And, uh, but I, if I had to distill it down to its essence... I would say that my circumstances forced me to reach out for help. And I, 
being being as I as we open, you know, the kind of person who runs toward a fire and put it out for others. Reaching out for help was a, was not my general way of being in the world. I was the helper. I was the hero, never the victim. And to need help, I you know, without getting into the details of my tortured childhood, uh, needing help was seen as a sign of great weakness. Uh, and so, you know, again, uh, the sages of the Talmud say, there's an essay in the book with this title, The Prisoner Cannot Free Himself. The mm. prisoner cannot free himself. When you are suffering, it is an opportunity to reach out. And you will be amazed and disappointed when you reach out in the midst of your suffering. Because when you reach out in the midst of your suffering, you will be amazed at how many people reach back to lift you from your suffering. And you will be disappointed by how many people do not. And, and now, the way I put that in the book, which is a little glib, I, I accept that, but I also think in its own way perfect, is when you are suffering and you reach out, the people who matter don't mind. And the people who mind don't matter. And, and so for me, Neil, my suffering brought me to my metaphorical knees. And, and frankly, literally to my knees because I couldn't walk. I had to drag myself with my upper body across the floor. So... Fundamentally, what the opportunity for me was one to learn to reach out. And, and so in the book, I deal with this on both sides of it. What does it mean? What does it take internally to reach out? And what does it mean to be reached out to? What do we do when another is reaching out? And what should we not do? So, you know, it, and, and I remember, I'll tell you a little brief story. I remember when... The, the fog lifted a little and I began to see an opportunity in all of this. And, and, and also, my, in the midst of my suffering, it revealed the depth of my wife and children's love for me, of my closest friends' love for me. You know, because the worst part of pain is not the pain, whether physical or emotional. It's the feeling of abandonment. It's the feeling of being in it alone that no one understands. Uh, so I was recovering after the surgery, and it was the first day I was able to walk a few steps, and I, and I went, walked out to the backyard of our home. And our home is up against a steep hill, and we'd lived in it for about 10 years at this point, and I had spent 10 years trying to fight back the weeds on that back hill. Uh, you know, I was at war two or three days a week with Mother Nature on the back hill of our home. I, I'm talking axes, machetes, chainsaws, poisons, you know, shovels, rakes, you name it, I employed it in this war. But I had, since the accident, it had been about three or four months since I had done anything on that back hill. And then I, I kind of limped my way with crutches out to the backyard and I, I laid down on a, on a chaise lounge to kind of warm and heal in the sun. And I was still in a, in a 
narcotic haze at this point. And I remember opening my eyes and there was a forest of weeds staring back at me from that back hill. All of my 10 years of efforts was undone in four months. And, and here they were, this, this gangly set of weeds, an insult to my infirmity, you know, mocking me. And then I noticed these tiny little beautiful, delicate yellow birds, a flock of them flitting back and forth between all of these weeds. And I had this moment of realization that this was both a real and metaphorical statement to me, a message to me that weeds, this was the original title of the book, by the way, weeds bring yellow birds. That's what I wanted to call the book. The publisher said no, because it didn't explain what the book was. But think about this. Weeds bring yellow birds. That, that was the first moment I realized that by ceasing to impose my will on the world, beautiful things were emerging. And I needed to calm the hell down. That is a very powerful realization and one that I've come to myself. Weeds are deemed desirable, uh, less desirable. They're even called weeds. weeds. There's no such thing as a weed. They're all right. right. We label them as such. And this for me is, you know, this is a real parallel to what we're facing with kind of the, the problems and issues we've got around racial inequality or inequality yes. in general. Because of how something looks, we label it in a particular way, which is BS. It's, yes. it's not a weed or a plant other than in your determination. Yes. So when we stop labeling things and we actually look at the true beauty, because there's a huge movement at the moment of rewilding. When you let things go according to nature, we see the true beauty. And one of the reasons we decimated insect populations and the natural world is because of things like beautiful manicured lawns, which don't exist in nature. They right. were created as a way to show wealth in the French courts. And now, obviously, in, in Western life, we use them as a, a display of opulence, which is nonsense. But it's, it's interesting because it goes back to there's so many wonderful things that you mentioned there. It's just going back to some of the things you said around weakness. There are so many phrases in life that are offered particularly to men. Man up, soldier on, grown men don't cry, pull your socks up and get on with it. There are all of these phrases that are telling us how we should be. We are not allowed to be the way that we need to be all the way that nature intended. And I think this is very to the analogy of weeds. It's, it's, why not let nature, you know, uh, follow its course? Yes. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that about men. The first piece I was ever paid to publish, the first piece I ever got a check for writing was for Playboy magazine. And it, <laughs> it was, it was, they had a very interesting column. Of course, we only read it for the, for the articles. I had, had a very interesting column called Man Track, which was about men, essentially. And I was a very young rabbi, and I was very into men's programming. I started a, a group called 100 Jewish Men, and et cetera, et cetera. And I wrote an article called God's Loneliest Creatures. And it was about what I had learned about men as a young rabbi. God's Loneliest Creatures. Yes. And, and you know... In terms of, of the issue of the racism, uh, which has always existed in the United States and in the world, but, but now is being hopefully confronted more honestly and in new ways, 
you know, what I thought about when you were talking about weeds being seen as a negative when, and, and there's no such word really. Uh, there's no such thing in nature as a weed. It's just another plant. Uh, is the way in which the word black itself has been framed as so negative in Western culture, right? A black night, black death, you know, black, yeah, black male, right? So, um, yeah, we have a tremendous amount of work and rethinking to do. And I will tell you that as long as we're on this subject, you know, I tend to think of things not as a pundit and not as a, a commentator on the daily news. I'm much more interested in trends over thousands of years. How, how have things been seen and understood over, over thousands of years? Not on CNN. And the way I understand as a religious person and as a person who, who thinks in the sweep of 4,000 years, to me, the root of this issue is not about racism. It is about something even larger, more dangerous, and more pervasive, which is the objectification of the other. Uh, to, no, no, you're right. So, yeah, that, I think for me, I, I look at that as you're black, you're white, you're Republican, you're Democrat, yes. you're... Right. You're red, you're blue. Yeah. Right. It is. It is the. It is the objectification of the other. Uh, you know, um, the the plague of darkness. There's another image of blackness being terrible, right? The ninth plague of the ten plagues of the Exodus story in the Bible is the plague of darkness, and the sages ask, "What kind of darkness was it?" Was it just nighttime during the day? Like, what, what was this darkness about? And the answer they give is that the darkness was so dark that the Israelites and the Egyptians could not see the humanity in the other. They could not see each other as human. They could only objectify and therefore fear the other. And to me, this is the problem. It is much bigger and deeper than black or white. It is not seeing the humanity in the other. I don't know if this was news in the UK, and I don't know if the image made its way around in the UK, but there was a moment during the early days of the protests after the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis, where I grew up, by the way, my father's business was three blocks from where he was killed. There was a moment where protesters were protesting. The police were trying to, you know, manage things. And in Michigan, in Flint, Michigan, one of the white police officers took his helmet, his riot helmet off, looked at the protesters and said, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And they said, march with us. And he did. And the barometric pressure of the nation changed in that moment. Now, why? I'll tell you why, because when he removed that helmet, they saw the humanity in each other. They ceased to objectify each other. And that is when something beautiful began to emerge. And that, that's powerful. I think we've seen this, you know, obviously yesterday was the end of Pride Month, the, the, the Stonewall sort of uh, violence that happened, that, that we're now starting to see the humanity in people that are different from ourselves. And, and I actually think the pandemic, the pandemic is helping. This is yeah. one of the good parts of the, the pandemic 
has actually taught most thinking people that we really are one and our destiny is literally in each other's hands. And, and, and we have ceased to objectify the other because we are the other and the other is us. That's a positive result. No, absolutely. This is an incredible leveling experience, whether you're rich or poor or male or female, you know, homosexual, straight, you know, you're Republican, Democrat, conservative or Labour. It doesn't matter because we're all facing the same challenge. And in a way, you know, I've always joked that the one thing that would literally bring us all together is if aliens attack, because all of a sudden, like, it's us against them. There's a bigger... Yeah. By the way, we're being attacked by an alien right now. Absolutely, and and I think this it's it's fascinating that we need a a common threat to bring us together, rather than you you know something positive or something a little bit more altruistic. But I guess that's the way the human beings operate away from pleasure. This is the power of pain. And by the way, I would add to that the fear of death. Nothing gets a person or a society's attention like death. Uh, And, you know, I would even go so far as to say death is the only thing that ultimately gives meaning to life. Imagine a deathless existence. What, What value would there frankly be to life itself? So I, you know, now the fact that death gives meaning to life in the particular is very painful for us because people we love have to die. And we actually, believe it or not, Neil, you and I will die. Right. So in the particular, it's, it's not a very comfortable reality. But in the largest and deepest sense, it is the only reality that matters and that lends meaning to our existence. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Right. So it's really only death that really gets our attention. It's only that gray spot on your MRI that really gets your attention. Right. Uh, And and in that way, I embrace it. And pain reminds you you're alive. You know, the, the feelings, all feelings, however uncomfortable, serve a purpose. And. In a way, pain tells you there's some action that needs to be taken. It's quite literally a, a, an alarm. It's an alert. And I think, you, you know, I, I, I'd like to, uh, being mindful of the time, this just really want to ensure that people are able to take something away from this. So, you know, firstly, looking at uh, individual pain, but also this collective pain, we are going through this experience of collective pain felt at an individual level, if that makes right. sense. It's, not just, it's a trauma. We are experiencing it through our own, you know, uh, three or five dimensional experience. What, what would you say or what, what guidance can you give people, tools to, to be able to navigate this experience? Because the reality is that if we've learned anything from Maslow, we can't do anything to, to contribute to the greater good if we can't take care of our own basic needs. So, right. you know, for people that are experiencing the kind of things that you've experienced that allowed you to come to these realizations, what advice or guidance could you offer? Well, I, I think the first and most important thing is, is internal. Uh, let's not worry so much about the rest of the world, right? This isn't just a wake-up call to the entire world. It's a wake-up to each of us. It's a wake-up to you. It's a wake-up call for you. And look, 
my approach personally, and I'm, I have as much, you know, people some say, so, well, of course you see this as an epic opportunity. You're a leader, you know, you're brave, you're courageous. None of which is true. I, I have terrible anxiety. I, I have many fears. I'm look, my retirement savings, which that I've worked for for 35 years are disappearing before my eyes. One of my two children is laid off with no hope of work any, you know, anytime soon. Uh, my other kid is worried. My wife is immunocompromised doubly once because of recent chemotherapy and the other because of being on a biologic for another disease. Um, you know, I'm worried about the congregation I've built over three decades. It's going to crumble. I have plenty of anxiety, right? I'm not special or immune, and none of us are. So let me just tell you what I do in the midst of my weaker, more frightening moments. I, I count my blessings. I literally count my blessings. Uh, I'll give you, uh, again, this is under this idea, which is, is, is something I've devoted my life to the past 18 months and working on this new book. I focus on the beauty of what remains, right? Because here's the positive side of this quarantine. I can only speak for myself, but I suspect it's universal. It has removed an awful lot of nonsense from my life. The way I think of it, there's a theological way of thinking about this. I'll try to do this quickly. There's a theological school of thought called via negationis in Latin, by way of the negative. What it means is you can understand what God is by deciding what God is not, right? You take away bad ideas and it leaves something behind. Now, a, a way to think about this more concretely, literally, is like a sculpture. If you think of a beautiful sculpture, a marble sculpture, think about how it began. It began as a, as a chunk of marble and the beauty was always within it but it was only revealed by judiciously and artfully removing to reveal what was always there in the first place, but kind of hidden in plain sight. And right now is a time to think of our lives in that way. This is a time when we're removing and removing and removing in order. I believe it leaves behind something quite, quite beautiful. And I'm not for a moment trying to dismiss or ignore the terrible suffering that has forced us into these conditions. But again, let's end where we started. We don't have to come out of hell empty-handed. We can come out of hell with, with this sculpture of a life that is more beautiful because of what's been removed. It's, that's a, it's a fascinating point because you go through life and you, you, you become a collection of stories uh, which shape you mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, energetically. And I think this is similar to yourself, a realization I've come to, that underneath all of those stories is the truth of who you actually are. Therein lies your sovereign cosmic power. And I obviously offer that for some people. They'll find that phrase a little bit woo-woo and left field. But for me, it's more than just kind of some hippie spiritual phrase. It's, it's, it, ultimately, we all arrived here, you know, as you described earlier in our conversation with the ikigai, the reason for being, the, um, I can't remember the term that you used. Tikkun, um, your tikkun, your repair. Yeah, your, your, your repair. Uh, and for me, that, that is your sovereign cosmic power. This is the gift that you bring to the universe. And let's be honest, it is the result. It is the result of a dichotomous tension, of a cognitive dissonance that, 
that is created by pain and joy. Yeah. By blessing and curse, mm -hmm. by failure and success. It is that it is the energy created by that dichotomous tension, the sparks between those realities of our lives, between our best and our worst self. It's that that is the energy that makes us who we are. And and that's why we that's why I advocate so strongly for embracing the negative side of that dissonance. Right. Because. It's only in that confrontation that we soar, that we become worthy of our suffering. For people that are listening, they are suffering and they're, they're blindsided by the suffering. They're, they're literally, uh, you know, quite literally disabled by it because they, they, they find it difficult to be able to move forward. Is there any sort of specific tools or strategies or recommendations you give people to really allow them to grasp the full gift within that experience to, to be able to move forward? Well, the first is something we spoke about, but it's fundamental. Reach out. Reach out. No one, no one endures suffering better alone. No one. There's not a human being on the planet who suffers better alone. The very first thing is to reach out. Uh, and, and, and that is the moment you will begin to move from surviving to healing and from healing to growing. And it's, there's a phrase in your book, the pain leads to transformation and make music with what remains. And that really lifted me. Um, mm -hmm. I've considered it in that way. There's a, a song I heard once is, uh, you know, whatever happens in your life, decide which wolf you'll feed. You feed the wolf. You know, that's a, so that's actually a Native American. Uh, yeah. that, that's a Native American folktale about two wolves that these children are asking their father, the chief. Uh, the, the chief says there are two wolves inside of us. One is the wolf of compassion and the other is the wolf of, of greed. And the children ask which wolf wins. And the chief says the wolf you choose to feed. The wolf that wins is the wolf who feeds. I'll give you another way of thinking about it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Soviet dissident, who uh, you know spent a good number of years in the gulag and survived by eating rats. So he knew a thing or two about suffering. He said, Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil is not a line between us and them. It's a line that runs down the center of each of us. Right? And, and so pain really gives you this opportunity to decide, who are you really? And, and do, do the people in your life matter or not? You know, pain removes a lot of nonsense from our lives. And again, I, in order to be respectful of everyone who's listening who is suffering, this is in no way an attempt to say that pain is, is, is the, the greatest thing that will ever happen to you, that, that pain is beautiful. It's not. It's horrible. But it is not only horrible. It is not only terrible. It will punctuate your equilibrium, ideally, and give you a new sense of freedom and a new life that you otherwise would not have had. And unfortunately, pain is the only ticket in. Yeah, and it's, I wish it wasn't. I genuinely wish it wasn't, but uh, I, I do concur. The... Even birth, Neil. I mean, birth is a, is, a, is a painful experience. It's an act of blood and guts and pain.
even birth, right? It's, it's just definitionally what it means to be human is to be born into this. And, and, to, and, and the goal is to make the most of it. It's interesting because I had this deep conversation with someone. It was a, a shaman from, from the jungles of South America uh, through a translator. And he hypothesized that the two most spiritual experiences a human being will ever have is being born and dying because you are coming out of spirit into body and you're leaving uh, body to go back to spirit. And he was talking in the context of some of their ceremonies which induce a particular state. And actually, when I went off and did research, your brain produces certain chemicals at the point of birth and the point of death, like DMT, which can be ingested. But it's interesting that, 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 that there are these powerful moments, both of which are extremely painful, because being born is not an easy experience. You're coming out of the warmth and comfort and safety of the womb into a horrible, strange, uncomfortable world, and you're leaving a painful existence to go back to whatever your belief systems are. And it's interesting that in many different spiritual faiths and, and many established religions that they look at this gateway into and out of existence as, uh, as kind of a transformative experience. And, and it's, it's interesting because I, I, I find that the, the, this whole kind of line of inquiry really fascinating the that you have to go through that pain to come into the world and you have to have the pain of the exit experience to go back to whatever glory lies beyond, if anything. Well, I would only correct one thing. Okay. And I have held the hands of a thousand, I'm not exaggerating, of a thousand dying people. And not one, Neil, when, when, when he or she was truly dying, you know, minutes, hours, not one has been afraid. So that's the only thing I would correct. I think it's the fear of death, yes, uh, is a great driver. But death itself, when the moment arrives, is not a painful experience. And I, I wish I could assure people of that. I, I, here's the good news, since you deal with anxiety uh, so much in your work. One of the things I often can say to people who fear death is this fact that when you're actually dying, you're not afraid, which means if you are afraid, it's not your day. <laughs> you know, anxiety is for the living, not the dying. Um, but there is no question. I, I would put it a little differently than your shaman friend. Every ending is a beginning. There's no question about it. Every ending is a beginning and blessings do not come any other way. All blessings require an ending in order to exist. You know, there's a piece in the book I call the root of all blessings, and it's a double entendre. I, I mean it both ways, R-O-O-T and R-O-U-T-E. If you, if you ask yourself, what are the greatest blessings in my life, and you trace them back to their root, you trace the root back to the root, most of our greatest blessings are rooted in a painful experience that preceded them. Right. Psychology is known. You have to get, and often it's in childhood, but and that will set up a template for life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. I do absolutely agree with what you're saying. It's the fear of death rather than the process of death. That's right. Uh, you, you know, when people are diagnosed with a terminal illness, and it's kind of that 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 facing your mortality, facing the fact that you have to leave. But the actual process of death, I was there. I, you know, we we. 
yeah. had to turn the machine off and hold my father as he passed away. And there was he there was nothing but peace from him. The pain exactly. was, you know, I was crying out and broken, but he, he looked perfectly at peace. That's right. And he was. And he is. It's, it's interesting. There's another line that, that jumps out at me, that your heart needs to break to allow the kind words, love and compassion to come in. And oh, having yeah. had my heart has been broken. And in the moment, it's like, oh, my God, woe betide me, why is this happening? But it's only through the breaking open. And I think this is something that, having uh, read a lot of Brittany Brown stuff and looked at her wonderful work around vulnerabilities, when you allow that to happen, rather than trying to stop it, like with you, trying to stop the weeds, pulling up, pulling yes. them up, rather than... Yeah. Yeah, allow it to happen. Allow nature to take its course. And actually, the unfolding is a powerful, beautiful experience. Yes, and, and it is true. You know, someone at a conference asked me when I was working on this, on the not the next book the, that's coming out in January, but this book you and I have been talking about. He asked, I, I told him about the experience of the spinal surgery, et cetera, et cetera. He said, well, uh, how, did it, how did it change you? And I immediately said, without thinking very much, I'm a nicer person. I don't think I was a bad guy before I went through all of this, but it gave me a, a, a level of empathy and insight I never could have achieved otherwise. And, and that's when this, this man at the conference, who was another rabbi, he said to me, well, you know, there's a story about this, that, that there's a, a verse in the Bible that says God puts his words upon our hearts. And the sages ask, why upon our hearts and why not in our hearts? Surely if God can put words upon our hearts, God can put words in our hearts. And the answer the sages give is that God puts words upon our hearts, and it isn't until our hearts are broken that the words can enter. And that is so beautiful and so true. For Even if you're not a religious person, certain things can only enter your heart when broken. And what does this mean? It means that that there is a paradoxical truth at work, which is extremely beautiful, which is we are actually more whole when broken. Well, it's, it's kind of like a bone breaking. When a bone breaks, it heals stronger than it was before. A bone will never break in the same place again because the healing process strengthens it beyond its, its previous capacity. Yep. And in, in a way, maybe that's the, 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 the opportunity or the beauty within trauma and pain is when we heal, we are more whole than we were before we started. I, correct. And I would say even that's the growth part. And, and it, it, it's a new way of understanding what it means to heal. Right. My back, by the way, will never be stronger. Never. I, some days I just bend over to brush my teeth and I, and I, I, I can't move. I'm paralyzed, you know. So it, I have to, th I think of strength now in a new way, right? My back is not physically stronger, but my spirit is. My heart is. My, my, my degree of empathy is. So we need to redefine strength, right? What does it mean to be strong after being broken? And, and it really means to be uh, at peace with your vulnerability and, well, and to be empathetic. It's, it's fascinating because there's the compensating effect. So a mutual friend of, of Susie who runs Change Your World and uh, myself, a gentleman called Phil, he, he lost his sight um, in, in adulthood. So he went blind. 
And we were once, we were out driving, we were doing a, an interview with him. We we're out driving and he can't see, but he knew, you know, we're driving around town. He knew exactly where we were. He's giving us directions. Yeah. The <laughs> is giving us directions. And we purposely drove past his house. And he's like, why have you driven past my house? Because there's that compensating effect. So when one of his faculties diminish, others strengthen. And right. I guess what you're saying is, you, you know, as much as your back may have weakened, there was the compensating effect and you strengthen in other ways. And I think when we grasp that, maybe there are skills that are more relevant for where you are in your life today, which were given to you as a result of the physical trauma of hurting your back. Absolutely. And that's, that is what it means to be more beautiful than before. That, that is exactly what it means. Fantastic. That's, that's, that's really powerful. There's so much more I want to get into. I'm just, I'm glad we're running out of time. Um, I do need to put out because we, I know we've got people listening live. Other people will catch up on the, the recording. But for anyone that's listening live, do you have any questions for Steve or myself or anything you'd like to explore or discuss? Um, uh, Susie's, oh, sorry, Change Your World's questions. How do you come out the side more beautiful than before? I think Steve just answered that, so thank you. There's another point here, which is around if death is what we're scared of, why are so many people scared to live? That's a really fascinating point, because the, the, this fear of showing up is definitely something that we're seeing more and more, that this anxiety of being able to, 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 to engage with, 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 with life um, and hide behind your screen and bury yourself in social media is something we're seeing more and more. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Steve? <sighs> Well, I, I guess I'm not, I need to know a little bit more about what this person means in terms of being afraid to live. I would say, consistent with our conversation, is that this person who's afraid to live has not yet had one of those punctuating of his or her equilibrium experiences, right? We're all capable of being alive. We're not capable of really living until something impels us, inspires us, or forces us uh, to embrace life in a new way. And, and so, you know, these people, you know, we'd have to put them in psychoanalysis to really understand it, but were probably raised by, by parents who were fearful and, and, and didn't embrace life or, you know. So I, I have to know more to give an honest answer, but my, my gut feeling is when people say they're afraid to really live, it's it's that they haven't yet had something that has forced them to embrace their true their true self within uh and there are probably many layers of how they were raised and the societies in which they live and maybe the places they work uh, that that are boxing them in in a conformed way um but i also would also caution against being overly judgmental of how other people seem to be choosing to live because you know, there are many people who are very content and, and at peace behind a screen. Um, I, I think, by the way, this is one of the dark little secrets of the quarantine during this pandemic is how happy most people are, assuming they have, assuming they have some cash flow and a, and, a, and a place to live, right? Assuming they're high enough up on Maslow's, you know, hierarchy. Yeah. I think the dark little secret of this pandemic is a lot of people are very happy hunkered down at home with one or two people they truly love and not not being out there in traffic and shopping and buying and standing in line and running errands and, you know, going into crowded places and 
I think a lot of people are very happy. So I don't think that they're not living. I think they're rediscovering or discovering for the first time the beauty of a simpler life with 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 more things removed. It's very old fashioned, you know. Young kids who are dating now, they're taking walks and sitting in the backyard having a picnic. They're it's very old fashioned and very beautiful in its own way. So sometimes the pause the pause is extremely beautiful and not so much a retreat. I, I totally agree. Lately, this is the great pause, like we called the First World War the Great War. This is the great pause that I'm hoping, you know, 50 to 100 years' time, they'll be reflecting back on this as a seminal moment in That's right. in, in human society. And I, I think you're right. You know, from a personal perspective, I spend my life on and off planes. Uh, you know, I'm traveling to different parts of the world. We've got projects all over the world. I'm in and out of hotels. Um, and I've had three months where I've not traveled more than a few miles from my house. This is the first time in my whole entire life that I can yeah. remember staying this amount of time in my local neighborhood yeah not so bad is it no it is great and you know having long walks i'm going to come out of this prison fit like literally because i'm exercising yeah. every day i'm eating well i'm cooking doing yeah. the things i didn't have time for and i think yeah. as you say i've discovered what it means to be living i used I to think that living was this fast pace of life that uh, you, you know the, the the roomy phrase when i was clever i wanted to change the world now that I'm wise, I know I must change myself. Yes. And the last three months have given me an opportunity to change myself. Yes. What I was doing is thinking I'm clever and running around trying to change the world and make it a better place. And I can only do that by being rather than doing. So that's, that was a very powerful realization. It's, it's via negationis. You have created something by ceasing to create. And, and that's the, that's the beauty. You know, there's a saying that they teach to young doctors about the emergency room, the ER which is don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> Interesting. Right? Just pause, look around, assess, consider before you act. And, and that, that is being, and again, to get back to the, the big fear of death, it's only the fear of death that could bring the world to hit the pause button, right? Uh, and, and again, you know, I don't want to be insensitive and I'm not, uh, that, the fact that it's coming at the price of hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of lives is a horrible fact, right? But let's not come out of that with nothing. I see a, a question, what has been the biggest lesson I've learned from this pandemic and what do, what do I hope will remain? Well, I'll, I'll take through a few quickly. One is I have learned how important it is for me personally uh, to spend less time running around going to meetings and more time being thoughtful and putting, putting uh, hopefully moving and, and important ideas out into the world with my words. That my words are now more important than my actions. Uh, and that, uh, and, and I do not see myself going back to spending 45 minutes in traffic to go sit in a meeting with five people that I could just as easily, you know, be online with. I don't know what I was thinking for all those years, right? So I, I it's, it's helped me Think about, I'm probably going to, you know, retire in, in four or five, six years. It's helped me think about how I want to spend the last four or five years of my career. And what I want to do is spend them teaching and providing content for people, not so much running around and going to meetings, you know, and, and sucking up to wealthy people for donations for the synagogue. I, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, and, it, you know, it has, it has also uh, encouraged me to take better care of myself physically much much like you neil you know mm -hmm. i haven't been great at that in my life 
And this has helped me become much, much better at it. Uh, and it's also given me great um, optimism about my retirement because what I have learned is I really love hanging out with my wife. We're perfectly happy here, very happy, you know, and, and, and I look forward to, to a lot more of that. Uh, instead of running around 12 to 14 hours a day in meetings with people I don't care about. That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, uh, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. It's just really helped us all, hopefully, to realize what's truly important. Because when the strippings of you know, the commercial lifestyles that many of us are used to living have been taken away, and you can't go to the restaurants and bars and supermarkets and spending money you don't have on things you don't need, you start to really appreciate the things that are truly important and that's right your life and the simple pleasures yeah. um you know all yeah. religions all religions have a blessing over bread yes and ask yourself you know why a blessing over bread the simplest of things and the the answer to me is obvious because if you can be grateful for the simplest of things you're going to lead a satisfied life I think about this. I really think in these ways. Every morning for breakfast, I have two pieces of rye toast with warm butter. It, it It's a freaking blessing. <laughs> there are no small blessings. If it's a blessing, it's enormous. And and that's the way to think in this new in this new way, new environment. It's interesting. Uh, a thought to finish with is um, I, I was listening to something by Eckhart Tolle, and he was talking about that we wait for this experience that, that we've been building up towards. And let's say, for example, you or I, we're, we're speaking at a conference, we're getting on stage, there's a thousand people there. So our whole preparation is for that moment. And when the moment arrives, it's okay, I'm in the moment. But he said the moment isn't that moment. It's the moment where you get in the taxi to get to the conference center. And then when you get out of the taxi to walk up the steps, and then we walk in the every moment is the blessing. So if you're right. this big, you know, moment of great magnitude, you're missing out all the other beautiful things that are happening in any, any given moment of your life. And I guess at this basic level, that's mindfulness. Is appreciating, right. mindful, without judgment, without expectations. Every right. To me, that's right. To me, th this word spirituality is, is overused to the point of having lost its currency. Hmm. To me, what spirituality means is the sanctification of the mundane right? The sanctification of the mundane. My first book that I ever wrote, which was, I don't know, 20 some years ago, and it was an admittedly simple book, uh, was called The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things. That's mindfulness, to see the extraordinary within the ordinary. That, that is the way to, to move through this pandemic uh, it, and, and in a way that brings more, not less, to our lives. More through less to our lives. That's beautiful. I think that's a great, a great moment to wrap up. I could literally talk to you for, for hours. We will, get you back. we will have further conversations for sure. This is Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you starting your day, uh, spending time talking to us and all, all our lovely listeners. Uh, to, to obviously share your life-changing conversation, because that's what this platform is, is very much about. If our listeners want to find out more about about you and the wonderful work you do, where would they go? Uh, they can go to steveleader.com. Okay. Fantastic. Yep. Come up in the chat box, so that, that's wonderful. 
Um, we will share all the links to, to you. Um, I, I assume your books are all available through um, stores on Amazon. So yeah, once again, for those who are interested, the, the book that I've got myself into is More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, available in all good bookshops. You've got your new book coming out next year. What's that called, Steve? January 5th. The new book is called The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Treasure. Excellent. Well, I, I eagerly anticipate getting out, uh, my hands on a copy of that as well. It's about uh, our dads, Neil. It's about our sorry. dads. It's about our dads. <laughs> well, even more so. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I did not expect to have such a deep emotional reaction in our conversation, but it's just as we got into it, I could just feel it. And it was quite powerful for us to be talking about pain while I'm revivifying a personal experience. So, so I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so for, for all, all of you listening, if you want to find out about the work that myself and my lovely team do, you can check us out at Stress Management Society, which is www.stress.org.uk. If you are part of an organization, you want to understand how to bring well-being into your workforce, it's www.wellbeing.work. So Duncan is going to share those links as well. And once again, a huge thank you to our incredible sponsors, Change Your World Events. So they're one of the founder members of Life Changing Conversations. Uh, our producer, Susie Beaumont, and also Duncan Risco in the background are doing all the work to make sure this all runs smoothly. Uh, you can change out their life-changing work at changeyourworld.me. If you'd enjoyed this podcast, please help us to create a ripple effect of positive change by liking, sharing, commenting. Let other people know that you've heard this. Let them know about the work that Steve's doing and get them to listen to this because I think there were so many powerful powerful moments in today's discussion that other people could benefit from. We'll be back again next month with another exciting guest. So look out for the next life-changing conversation coming soon. Have a wonderful day. Much love to you all. Take care. You've been listening to the Life-Changing Conversations podcast with Neil Shah. This podcast was produced by Change Your World Events in collaboration with the Stress Management Society. Like, comment, and share, and keep the conversation going. Hashtag LCC Podcast.